back before things started to get really serious with COVID here in America, I went to Chicago for a theology conference, about 400 pastors or so, and my friend Mike was there. My friend Mike is a senior pastor, a young senior pastor, but he also is really into music and singing. Turns out he was leading the music at this conference. And uh, I, was, I approached him as soon as I got there, went by myself, freezing weather, February time. And I said, hey Mike, are you going to be the one leading us into worship today? And he said, no, I'm going to be the one leading us into music. I can't decide whether you worship or not. And some, some of our pastor friends were, were by him, and they were just chuckling. And they were like, come on, Mike, why are you giving him a hard time? Why are you being nitpicky? And he was like, I'm not, I'm not trying to be nitpicky, I'm just practicing good theology. And he was 100% right. And I look back on that time and look back on that experience as very instructive for me to help me think more about what worship really means. We use titles for church staffs like worship director or worship pastor or worship leader. And that could be a quick and easy way of letting people know what the responsibilities of this individual are. But nobody on the music team can make anyone sing or worship. You have to decide to do that yourself. Even more, worship cannot be, when we look at the word worship and understand what it means, it cannot be restricted to singing for 20 minutes on Sunday morning. Worship is not just the singing, it's the entire service. It's, it's not even just the entire service it's a way of life. Unfortunately, the word worship in the Western context has been restricted to singing. It, it's not less than that, but it's, it's more than that. I bring this up because today we're looking at a Christmas passage. It's Advent time. It's Christmas time. We're looking at familiar stories that we've seen over and over again for some of us raised in a Christian home or raised in a Christian context. And the passage that we're looking at today in Matthew, as Pastor Mark read it, often gets attributed to silly questions like, what were the Magi's name? Or how many were there? Or how many gifts did they bring with them? What did the gifts represent? How old was Jesus at this time? What, are, are the nativity scenes correct or not? And those are good things to talk about. But when we focus on those aspects of the passage or those aspects of Christmas, we miss the point. And the big point of this passage, as we'll see, is worship. That that baby, that that toddler at this time, is not just an ordinary toddler, but he is, in fact, going to go up to be the Son of God, Son of Man, and he is worthy of worship. Our hearts were made for this. This is something that God has put into everyone to to, be a, a lo to belong to something bigger and better than yourself, to be a part of something, to live for something more than just career success or family or money. Our hearts were created to worship. Or like Herod, sometimes our hearts turn in on themselves and we desire the worship. Or we might make something in our lives more important than God, and therefore that thing is more important to us than God, making that thing our object of worship. 
So this is a important reminder for all of us during this bizarre season, during this slow season for some of us to reorient our desires back to God and to remember who it is we worship. Because Christ is king, we should worship him. That's, That's the main idea of this passage. I need to prove to you that that's the main point of the passage because other aspects often get the credit. So I will prove to you by showing you a few things. One is the word worship is repeated several times. And if you, if you, if you know about sort of biblical writers and how they write, you know, we, we repeat ourselves because we like to hear ourselves talk. You know, biblical writers inspired by the Holy Spirit, every single word is there because God wanted it to be there. And so sometimes repetition and literary sort of reading, literature stuff in the Bible is, is meant to make a point. And one of the big points is the word worship is repeated three times. Verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to, here's our word, worship him. Verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Happens three times. Just a few verses. Matthew's trying to get our attention. This This is about worship. This is about the king who deserves worship. Another Hint is the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It says that in the very first verse. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. Three times the Bethlehem is mentioned. If you know your Old Testament well, or at least decently well, if you don't, that's okay. We're all learning together, and we're all on this journey together to grow. I still have a lot more to learn. There's so much I don't know. The more I know, the more I realize how much I don't know. So I'm, I'm on this journey with you. Learning every day, trying to grow my knowledge of God and the Bible. And one of the things you'll see in the New Old Testament is that many of the kings were, were, were from Bethlehem. Many of them. And there were kings and they had ministries. And yet, all of them failed mightily in some way, or at least most of them did. And their ministries were meant in part to point to a better king to come later. And that one was Jesus. So Jesus born in Bethlehem was revealing that he was the king. But not, all, not only that he's God, not only that he's king, but also to fulfill scripture. I, I read the verse to, to start our service today from Micah. It says that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. It, he couldn't have been born anywhere. He had to have been born in Bethlehem because there was a prophecy that predicted he would. So a prophecy is like a prediction that comes true. There's a lot of them in the Old Testament. Old Testament, fill of promises. New Testament, uh, the fulfillment to those promises. And one promise, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was to be born, it says this. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Saying, in the hundreds of years from now, there's going to be someone who comes that's, that's God, that's the Christ, that points to all this. And what do you know? Here in Matthew, it happens. 
there are many of these prophecies in the Old Testament that come true. And if you look at them, it builds your faith because you realize that the Bible has zero errors and it's historically accurate. So what we're starting to see quick in the passage is that Matthew is showing us that it's not about the presidents. It's not about the magi, so to speak. It's about Christ and the fact that he is worthy of worship. But quickly into our passage, we do see these wise men. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we star star and we've come to worship him. Wise men, magi, same people. Some people prefer wise men, some people prefer magi. It's different names for the same people. And the word magi comes from a, a, the word magic, but at this point it has flexibility and meaning. They, they were the kind of people that were really into astrology, you know, like planets, sun, stars. Uh, they were really into dream interpretations, sacred writings. They were people who were into the planets. They pursued magic, and, and so, somehow uh, many of them didn't have Christian faith, okay? So many of them were, quote-unquote, pagan or not a believer in the God of the Bible, right? But through their sort of astro their calculations, they concluded that a royal birth had taken place. It says that a star led them. And tradition has it that there were three wise men. Doesn't doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. We don't know how many wise men there were. They likely traveled with many, many people. People say that, well, there was three gifts, but it says gifts plural, but three gifts are mentioned. There could have been way more than three gifts. So we don't know how many gifts, we don't know how many people. But we know that there was frankincense and incense and myrrh and gold and so forth. And uh, once the Magi finally get to the home, jumping ahead a little bit in the passage, they, they see Jesus and they fall down and they worship him. Mary's in the home too, but Matthew says that the Magi fell down to worship him, not Mary. There's some people who... You know, pray to Mary and sing to Mary and worship Mary, and that is simply wrong. In the Bible, only God deserves worship. And Jesus is God, therefore he deserves worship. Was a long time ago, I was getting a haircut from a guy, wonderful guy, very kind, very gentle, and was cutting my hair, and we were talking about life, and somehow my Christian faith got brought up, and we started talking about faith, and he told me that he was a Muslim. And we started talking about faith and, and the differences and so forth. And then he said, we worship the same God, don't we? No, we don't. If you don't believe Jesus Christ is God, then we don't worship the same God. His, that story reminds me of this understanding of worship. And as I mentioned earlier, we, we tend to think about it in terms of singing, singing songs, which is great. It's wonderful. Christians, the, the people of God should be, we should be a singing, praising, thanking people because of what Christ has done for us. And no other major religion am I aware of in their, in their services do they sing, at least not with the passion that the people of God do. And so when we look at the word worship and we look in the Bible, we see words like homage and service and reverence. The word worship comes from the words like respect and awe service, and submission. But the primary mark of worship is obedience to God all throughout the week. 
Not perfect obedience, because none of us are perfect, but obedience to Scripture nevertheless. So singing is good, going to church is essential, it's essential for the faith, but there is a, such a thing as sort of going through the motions or just checking it off a religious box or doing it for the sake of other people. That is not true Christian worship. True Christian worship is not less than the church, but it's a all throughout the week thing of looking at every aspect of your life, your talents, your treasures, as Gary talked about last week, your stewardship. It's looking at all of your life and saying, what does the Bible say about this and how can I obey God? That's what worship looks like. It's obeying God. Paul talks about this in the book of Corinthians where he writes to the book, the Corinth church, and there was a lot of issues in the church. And then he sums it up with one verse. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, he says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is showing that even little things like eating and drinking or whatever you do, everything, doing all to the glory of God. Glory is, comes from a word that means weightiness, whatever the thing that you give most weight to in your life, the thing that you love the most, that's, that's what you worship. What Paul is saying is, hey, do all things for the glory of God. Worship Him. To understand what we worship or what we really love the most in our lives, we we can state it positively, and we can also state it negatively. Depending on your personality, you might appreciate one more than the other. Positively, we can just simply ask, hey, do, you, do you love Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he's God? Do you want to follow him? Do you want to live your life for him? It's putting it positively. And if you say yes, yes, and yes, and so forth, you're, you're worshiping him. That's who you're living for. I'll believe you if you say yes. That's putting it positively. Put it negatively too, and I was looking at my NIV study Bible. I also have one at home. It's a little different. And I was looking at that footnote in, for a passage on worry, and the commentator said that our worries reveal our worship. So, so that's one way to put it negatively, to try to figure out what it is we truly trust in, what it is we truly believe in, is looking at our worries. So ask, what, what keeps you up at night? What gets you worried? What are you really, really anxious about? If you look deeply and not just look at the service, there's probably something there that is more important to you than God, or there's probably not fully trust in God. Like, for example, right now, this season of life that we're in, if you feel scared or cautious, that's totally normal. We need to practice good common sense. We need to be wise. That there's, there is, you know, fears and doubts and that kind of stuff is normal. But a, a crippling worry, a crippling anxiety about my life or the future might show. Maybe, maybe we need to trust God more for our future. Raising kids and grandchildren in this generation seems to be really, really hard, especially over the last 20 years, since the 21st century, since material prosperity has led to not only spiritual complacency, but there's been so much attack on the church from various revolutions and people, and it just seems like an anxious time for parents in particular. And I, and I can have some of those anxieties too about the future, about where's this going with Christian education, and where are we going with 
the church, and man, it feels like there's so many attacks, and yet we have to stop and worry. Having a little bit of fear, that, that's normal. The instance is okay, but the pattern of fear and worry and anxiety, sometimes it, it reveals what we truly worship and who we really trust in. So I encourage you to examine your heart and examine the things that you're really anxious about, to cast those things before God, to pray. It says in Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 5, to cast all your anxieties on the Lord, to throw them on Him, so to speak, to hurl them on Him, and allow Him to take care of you. But those, those worries deep in our hearts, that, that's what we, we show that we really truly trust Him. And, you know, with this season of, for a lot of us, more time or more time at home, you know, before it was, uh, we would sort of, God was number two or number three in our lives because there was, well, I'm so busy, I'm, I'm busy, I've got work and kids and practice and going from this thing and that thing and it seems like God was often pushed to the side. And then now what I'm starting to see with people staying at home more is this sort of, it's become almost awkward to stop and pray. Uh, the, the feeling of feeling bored is so undesirable for some people that even reading their Bible or praying for 15 minutes a day is just, it just seems like too much, right? Always on our phone, always texting and emailing and always on social media. Uh, surely, I don't, I don't, I'm not God, so I don't, I don't know what his plan is with, with everything going on with this COVID season, but surely part of it is to slow people down to help people to draw near to him and he will draw near to you to remember that our lives are about are, are supposed to be about worshiping him so just want to encourage you throughout the month of december through this advent season with more time on your hands to not to not waste the season you know focus has become the new superpower of the 21st century to, to not let distractions, to embrace the sort of stillness and to, to be with God, to spend time with Him. How else are you going to be able to worship Him correctly throughout the week if you neglect to be with Him? We need His help. We need His power. We need His grace. And He reveals Himself and He strengthens us through the Word and prayer. So let me just encourage you this Advent season for the rest of the year to figure out a way to draw near to God and He will draw near to you. The Magi in this passage, they, they came to worship Jesus, but there was one who did it, and that was King Herod. King Herod is in this passage, and he was a, the leader. He was a very gifted man. He built many buildings, theaters, cities, palaces, fortresses. Politically, he was the man. He was wealthy. He called the shots. He snapped his fingers. People did things. But towards the end of his life, he became very wicked and actually had some of his family members murdered. He was very all about himself and his own power. And when he found out that Jesus was going to be born, he says that he was very troubled. And not just him, all of his posse, all the people that he had appointed because he knew that the religious and political landscape at this time was very corrupt. And he knew that Christ being born could hurt his power and mess with him in some way. So it really bothered him when he heard about the Christ being born. And he started talking to the Magi and saying, hey, we, we figure out where he was, where he is, so I can go worship him as well. When he said that, he was lying. 
Because later we know that Herod had all the children under two killed. He was not trying to worship Jesus. And miraculously, in God's power, Herod did not send an escort with the Magi. He could have easily done that, but he didn't. He could only believe that it was God's intervention to protect Jesus. So in addition to worship being repeated a couple of times in this passage, and the mention of Bethlehem, the country of Bethlehem, where the kings are from, Another thing that Matthew is trying to do in this passage to show is that Jesus is the one who's worthy of worship. The king is to show a contrast between an unqualified, incompetent king versus a competent king in the Lord Jesus. Herod didn't know his Old Testament Bible well. Jesus did and often quoted, quoted it from memory. Herod was a ruthless ruler who viewed others as a threat. Jesus is gentle and meek and loves children, and accepts people where they are, and wants to help them flourish. Herod had family members and many people murdered. Jesus never murdered and never had an unrighteous thought towards anyone, but instead he himself gave himself up to sinful people so that he could die on the cross in our place for our sins and rise from the dead. That anyone who would look to God and believe in God and put their faith in God, they can have all their sins forgiven forever, past, present, and future sins, and have a right relationship with God. One of the things that Matthew's doing is showing a contrast that Jesus is the true king and Herod is a false king. Jesus is a true king who's going to shepherd his people well. And even today, now, sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning, and people call to him and he helps his people. Herod was very scared of his power, and power is actually a good thing. We tend to think of power as a bad thing, but in his book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power, Andy Crouch mentions that power is one of those words that has got a bad reputation now. We think of political leaders or religious leaders or business owners or principals or whoever who lord their authority over people and, and micromanage and make people feel bad. And, and certainly that's a bad representation of power. But actually power is a good thing. And essentially it's just influence. It, it, the purpose of power is to help people under your authority flourish. Right? So we're under Christ's authority and he wants us to flourish. And so biblically speaking, if you're a parent, a grandparent, a teacher... You have a business and people work for you, pastors, companies, owners of companies. You, you have power. You have influence. Coaches, teachers. I mean, the things you say, I still remember things that my fourth grade teacher said to me. Good. It was good. It was very encouraging. It built me up. I still remember things my football coaches said to me. Some good, some bad. If you're a coach, football coaches, don't spoil anybody. Everyone gets yelled at and most people get cussed out at some point. That's just the reality of playing football, okay? Um, pastors, good youth group leaders, been very helpful, very formative, especially at young ages. If you, if you have power and influence over people, you do have to put your foot down sometimes, Right? Not, be, not being a pushover, not, not letting people walk all over you, right? That, that, that's not, that doesn't help people flourish. 
But going the other side too and walking all over people, that, that doesn't help people flourish either. We have to avoid both contrasts and have standards, but be gracious and help people flourish. So let me just encourage you with whatever influence you have as a parent, as a teacher, as a coach, to consider your leadership and say, how could I help people around me flourish and grow? That's the point of leadership. That's the thing that Herod did not do at all. He was the opposite of that. And so throughout this time, throughout the history of Israel, all throughout the Old Testament, and between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was about 400-year gap. There was all these bad kings and bad rulers and bad bosses and bad leaders, and the people of God were being hurt and beat up and taken advantage of, crying out to God, like, when are you going to fix this? When, when, when is this going to get better? How many years are we going to have to live like this? Finally, it's come to where the Christ has been born. And he's come to help people flourish, help them thrive. It's the same thing that we're called to do with whatever amount of power or influence is to serve people. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. King Herod feels threatened, but the Magi do not. The Magi are eventually led to a star, to the home of Jesus. They fall down and worship him. Ordinarily, a star is not how God leads people. This is a very sort of distinct, unique time. God leads his people today through the Bible, through prayer, through your conscience, through asking other mature, trusted Christian friends what they think. This is an extreme example. It's, it's not the norm in any way, but nevertheless, God's leads the magi this way because he knows that they're into stuff like the stars because they're magi and he stoops to their level so to speak as one commentator pointed out what a wonderful thing that god would do even people don't even have faith and yet god is still helping them to get them to christ and they see jesus less than two years old not a baby and they fall down and they worship him of course, it's appropriate that the Magi fall down and worship Jesus, even though they didn't understand it. At this point, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has only gone to Jewish people. Gentiles have not been grafted in. A Gentile is anyone who isn't Jewish. So the Magi are Gentiles, and this is sort of a picture of foreshadowing what's going to happen later throughout the Bible, where the gospel goes to people who aren't just Jewish. Now, anyone can have in on the salvation and know God black or white rich or poor left or right anybody no matter what sins you've committed you you can be in on this you can get into the people of God and to live for what God created you to do which is to live for God and know him so the magi these gentiles falling down and worshiping is a picture to all the people of God later every person appropriately worshiping him it's a picture of the gospel going forward to new people and th that is the thing that we celebrate most for christmas i enjoy eggnog some people do some people don't i like it christmas trees going out and seeing lights having family this year it's going to be tough i know people have to make hard decisions about how many people can we have in the home and so forth it can get it can be really easy to let the sort of being at home all day and the depression we might start to feel of being at home to, to bog us down. But I just want to encourage us to, to look to Christ this December, 
this Advent, to remember Him, to draw near to Him. He, he's the most important thing about this season. We think of babies or toddlers. You know, if you buy a toddler a present and they sort of wrap the paper and uh, unwrap the paper and open the present and they seem to be more concerned about the, the wrapping paper than the present sometimes. And it's like, no, the present, I got you the present. Look at, that's just paper, just throw that away. Look at the present. That's sometimes what we can do throughout the Christmas season when we get so fixated on something and we, we miss the point. It's knowing God, drawing near to God, remembering what God has done for us in Christ. So let me just encourage you to do that this Advent season. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to draw near to you, and we ask that you would draw near to us. Lord, I know I've been feeling bogged down with staying at home. I know many of us feel that way. We are feeling um, just not ourselves. Maybe there's some, de- some depression that's real. Maybe there's some melancholy. There's some fatigue. And Lord, we, we, uh, many of us are feeling that. And Lord, I just want to pray for, for help, for strength. And I just pray that you would help us to draw near to you this, this December. There's a lot of things wrong with the world, but there's nothing wrong with you. A lot of things have changed, but we know the Bible hasn't changed at all. And we don't always understand why you allow or even send a lot of these hard things that we face. But we know that your character is good, God. So Lord, I pray, renew our love today, this morning, this month, for those of us who have push you aside. Help us to draw near to you and to put you first place in our lives again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.